Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. And welcome to Season 4 of The Common Bridge. I'm Brian Kruger, the producer of the show, and Rich is kicking off Season 4 with a really special two-part interview with Ranked Choice voting advocate Rob Ritchie. We think you'll really find this interview both informative and entertaining. We join Richard Helpy and Rob Ritchie in conversation. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. Your host, Rich Helpy, here with our guest today, Mr. Rob Ritchie. He's been the leader of Fair Vote since the co-founder of the organization in 1992 and was named president and chief executive in 2018. He's been involved in helping to develop, win, and implement ranked choice voting in states and more than 20 cities, fair representation voting systems in numerous Voting Rights Act cases, the National Popular Vote Plan in 16 states, and voter access proposals like voter pre-registration and automatic voter registrations. Good chance you've seen Mr. Ritchie because he's been on all sorts of media, too many to name here, but everything from CNBC to NPR to Freakonomics, the New York Times, the Washington Post. He's quoted in 11 books. He's a co-author of Every Vote Equal and Whose Votes Count, which is about fair representation voting in his view. He's addressed many conventions and he's here today to talk with us about ranked choice voting, a topic that a lot of people have heard about, but not very many people know about. And we're going to try to go from start to finish today on this most important topic. So, Rob, welcome to the Common Bridge, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. Really a great pleasure, Rich. Thanks for having me on. So, Rob, our readers, our listeners, and our viewers, they like to know a little bit about our guests. So, Tell me, where did you spend your early days and maybe a little bit about your academic preparation and some of your professional experience leading up to what you're doing for FairVote? Yeah, well, I've actually been at FairVote half my life now, so I guess I have to jump back to those first 29 years. But um, I uh, was a National Park, Park Service kid. My dad was in the Park Service, and they kind of move you around quite a bit. So I had a chance to live in some places like Concord, Massachusetts and Mount Rainier National Park. Grand Coulee Dam, uh, Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, outside D.C., outside uh, Boston. Um, and I um, then went to Haverford College uh, uh, near Philadelphia. Um, I'm a Quaker, and that's, I think, a part of what is tied to how I think about elections and politics. Um, and um, kind of spent a lot of my 20s kind of figuring out how to connect my aspirations for sort of um, addressing some of the sort of looming ecological problems. I actually did a, a, a special issue about global warming way back uh, in 1990 at a, at a, a, a community journal. Um, didn't really work in electoral politics till my um, my fiance, now wife, um, uh, sort of lured me in to work to, on a couple of congressional campaigns and both sort of saw the promise of what elections can be and also felt they were really um, 
not living up to that promise. And that's where I kind of looked more into our history, what other countries were doing, and sort of found this, you know, fascinating opportunity to connect with a, a number of other people who felt the same way. And I helped uh, I found Fair Vote by connecting with them back in 92. Fantastic. And, you know, I don't know that anybody knows the exact answer. We get a lot of different viewpoints on this program. We do invite a strong diversity of opinion, although I'm seeing great agreement on the problem that the elections aren't letting people feel like they're being represented and all these good ideas we need to go through. Well, ranked choice voting. So let's start with the basics. So suppose one of our listeners, our viewers, or our readers had never heard of ranked choice voting. And just for this exercise, suppose that person's an engineer or a programmer, you know, kind of a logical, structured person. How would you explain the design of ranked choice voting and some of the mechanics? How does it work? Well, I think in the most fundamental sense, right, that what it's doing differently is right in the name of the system, right? So it's ranked choice voting rather than single choice voting. So, right, when if you go to vote in our current system uh, that we see in most elections, you, no matter how many people are running, you only get to pick one, right? So you're leaving your views about everyone else on, 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 on the table. Also, it's very much all or nothing, right? You just, you know, you vote for that person or that's it. Um, and everyone else knows that, right? If you're like, if you have a yard sign outside your sign, your, your house, and it says like, I'm for this person, like everyone's like, okay, I guess they're for that person. Then that's that, you know, ranked choice voting is saying, no, you should be able to do more than that. You should be able to say who your first choice is, but also your second choice is your third choice. So it's a ranked choice system. Um, and the idea of how those ballots are used, and there really actually are a lot of interesting ways that ranked choice voting can work. So it's not like a single way it's done um, or the single application. And really what I think it, where it gets interesting is, is when you connect it to how it's being used. But the most basic concept is that your ballot goes all in with your first choice. And if your ballot though can't help elect your first choice, if that candidate is a weak candidate who doesn't have a chance to win, your ballot goes to your second choice, right? So you have a backup, an alternate it actually is called the alternate votes sometimes, but it's is it, is essentially saying you have an a a backup to your vote. So let's look at the most basic way that that ranked choice voting is used. Uh, sometimes called an instant runoff, which kind of helps clarify if people know what a runoff election is, where you know everyone votes for in the first round, and if no one gets a majority, half the votes in the top two camps advance, and 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 there's a whole second election, you know, two months later or whatever it is. Um, Ranked choice voting is essentially saying, well, let's not let's keep the idea that it's important to win a majority, but let's not ask people to have to come back again in two months, but see if they actually know how they would vote right now. So um, your ballot goes your first choice um, and it stays with your first choice unless your first choice is a weak candidate. So you add up all the first choices, if it's a 45 percent to 40 percent to 15 percent, let's say it's just a three candidate race. Rather than have a whole instant, you know, traditional runoff election, just you're looking at what those voters who who supported the candidate with 15 percent and what they think. And you look at their ballots and you look at who they rank second. And then you add those ballots to their second choices. So it becomes head to head. One way to think of it is like so let's say there's a, a traditional two two person race. You know, it's it's Jim and Nancy and. And Nancy gets 55% and Jim gets 45%. Simple. Um, 
If you add a third candidate, though, you can have Jim, Nancy, and let's say Sally, right? And so Jim, Nancy, and Sally. So let's say the Jim voters keep their 45%, still have 45%. But Nancy, who used to have 55%, now she, go, she goes down to 40%. And then Sally has this you know, 15% of the vote. Um, so the very same voters in one set of choices elect one person, but by the addition of a third person, it changes the outcome if all you're doing is adding one choice. Ranked choice voting is saying, well, that's not actually a fair way to do it. Let's knock out the person who's in last place, in this case, Sally, look at the second choices. Turns out that they're all for Nancy. And so it's back to 55 to 45%. And that's really what, what ranked choice voting is. You uh, can do it with a lot more candidates. You can use it in, in, in particularly different ways, but it's this idea of a backup and it's the idea of trying to establish who is the majority winner, who is trying to build a consensus rather than someone that might be able to finish kind of a top of the heap and with, say, 30 percent of the vote represent 100 percent of the people. And so this would work in elections where there was by statute, which might differ from state to state or, you know, in primaries from party to party that required someone to get 50 percent plus. Because we've seen lots of elections where it's, you know, 44 to 43, and then yes. the other ones are distributed. So the idea is no one's elected without some preference over that 50% mark. And the manner of getting there is that if there were, in this case, well, just say, let's say there were four candidates, that the, the if no candidate got over 50%, the candidate that had the least would drop out and their second choice would be voted. And they'd take a look, is anybody over 50%? And if that's not the case, then they'd eliminate the next yeah. least person and use their third choice, or would they use their second choice then again to try to get over 50? Well, your ballot always goes to whoever is ranked highest on the ballot that's who's still active. So, so if your first choice continues to be active and 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 is in in the running, your ballot stays with that person because there's a one person one vote system. So you never get to have two votes count at the same time. But if your first choice is is in last place, that's sort of the that's the key thing. If your first choice is in last place, that person's knocked out, and your ballot goes to your second choice. Okay, that's a, that's a real clear way to put that. And. I know before I started reading about this, I thought, well, I was wondering, does it work like the NCAA football rankings that you know, this is the number one ranked team and they got X number of first place votes, but they get so many points for second and third and so forth. So this right. is one vote. So if I cast a ballot for candidate three and candidate three you know, doesn't win and candidate one and two, neither of them have over 50%. If I picked candidate two as my backup choice, then um, that vote would count when they recalculated, kind of like a preset runoff in, in some respects. Exactly. That's why this instant runoff metaphor uh, makes sense. And I'm, the way we're talking about it, it's all sense sort of mathematical and things. But let me just sort of put it in, in, in human terms. And, I, you know, we're probably going to get to this. But just, you know, I think we've established what it is. But what it means from a candidate and voter perspective is you now have a whole different incentive to extend your conversations, right? So that if you're a candidate, you're trying to get as many first choices as possible. You can't win by being everyone's second choice. You do have to be a candidate who has earned first choices. So you have to, you have to be looking for people that like you and, and are ready to be represented by you or want that. Um, but because you're trying to build a consensus in a sense, you're trying to be the candidate that can beat others head to head. 
you also need to have conversations with people who are clearly backing someone else and say, here's why I should be your second choice. Here's why I am someone that, you know, I'm, I recognize I'm not your favorite, but I, but I think I'm making a good case and I can be a good representative and I'm going to listen to you and, and, and I hope you respect me. And, and, and meanwhile, the voter doesn't just lock into their first choice and stop thinking. They have, a, they have an opportunity it's not a requirement, by the way. You don't have to rank. Ranking is 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 an opportunity, not not a mandate. You can say, okay, I, I want to learn about some of those other, those those other candidates. Some of the cities that have had rankers voting for the first time can kind of you know, which we've seen a big jump in cities uh, in some states using it. But you can compare pretty directly to what their previous experience was, and they'll. You know, say, wow, a lot more people are going to the debates, like, say, Santa Fe, when they used it for their mayoral, um, mayoral elections a few years ago, was, it was particularly uh, talked about, like, candidates, people are really going to all these debates, and you talk to the, the people going, they say, well, I, I know who my first choice is, but I'm still trying to figure out who I want to rank second, and who I might want to rank third, and, and the candidates all know that, so they have to be looking for distinction from the other candidates, but also some common ground with them, right? So, showing that you are not, uh, that, that you have some connection to the voter who's decided to vote for someone else. You are trying to look for a connection so that you can be their, their second choice. I see. Now, is ranked choice voting better for primaries or general elections? Well, it's different arguments. Um, and I think it's pr- more politically viable right now for primary elections. Um, the most dramatic uses that we're seeing are for general elections. It really draws a lot of attention. But I think that the partisan element of it and the fact that, of course, someone's going to win and everyone else is going to lose, shockingly, that actually still happens. Uh, (laughs) But people just sort of put it into partisan terms. Um, And uh, I do want it uh, ultimately used for all of our partisan elections. I find that, that primary elections, both parties have a real strong interest um, to get nominees who bring their party together and put them in a good position to win in November, right? And and, and ranked choice voting really does that. And so we've seen some really interesting uses of it, like Democrats used it in uh, presidential primaries in four states in 2020, and it really worked well. Um, and then Virginia, Republicans um, have used it multiple times, including Glenn Youngkin, who's the governor of Virginia. He won a seven-way uh, race for governor with ranked choice voting, and they used it in three congressional primaries uh, this spring by their own choice. And they just want to get nominees who help bring the party together. So I think that it's something that I, I expect will kind of build more quickly in primaries. And it's being used on a lot of nonpartisan elections. We're up to more than 50 cities and counties that are nonpartisan that are using it just to uh, often just fold two rounds of voting in, in, in into one argument, sort of it's a faster, cheaper, I would argue, better way of voting for, for that. And that's catching on. Um, and um, so we expect, you know, number of cities could go from 50 to 500 in the next three or four years. And I think we'll we'll see a real growth of use in primaries and we'll have conversations about partisan elections. And I do hope that goes. It keeps going that direction, um, but it may go quicker for the primaries. Yeah, look, I, I think about the uh, Trump phenomenon in 2016. And he was winning a lot of the early primary winner take all with, you know, like 22% of the vote. And so, you know, it's a great thought exercise. Like what would happen if the vote had to go through ranked choice? Probably have one through 17 in that case until someone got 50%. Can I, can I actually comment on that, Rich? Because it's kind of interesting. We, we did a poll ourselves um, 
uh, national poll, uh, work with, working with the College of Women and Mary in um, right around the time of the Iowa caucuses. So there were still 11 active Republicans. And um, Trump was the leader in first choices nationally, but he did lose the instant runoff. In that case, it was like sort of at Ted Cruz's peak. So actually, Ted, Ted Cruz was the one who ended up uh, defeating him head to head. But interestingly, Trump was the candidate that a plurality of people, meaning the you know a substantial number of people, ranked him first. But he's actually the candidate that most people ranked last as well, right? So, so you know, so he was the candidate who like led in last choices and led in first choices. He was very polarizing. In the current system, that that's okay for him, right? It it, it doesn't really matter because the first choices, as long as you are finishing at the top of the heap, that's good enough. But I think under a different rules, I suspect he he would have had to change his behavior um, and and change how he ran. Uh, in those nomination contests or lost. You know, I think that that's, that's kind of probably what would have happened. Um, we did see a number of polls where you could simulate ranked choice voting across those early contests. And it is true that he generally was losing those uh, if it was head-to-head against his strongest person, whether it's Rubio or Kasich in, in, in New Hampshire or whomever it might be. Um, but, you know, it's an alternate world. That wasn't the system that people use. But I think it does make the point that it does help a party make sure, kind of confirms that they're getting the best candidate for themselves. The big takeaways on my show is this, that people are just exhausted with the polarization, with the partisanship. It's cult blue versus cult red. And it's just gets exhausting. And and people don't feel like they're being represented, that we still have major issues that are solvable but they're just not getting the attention and people are are getting chewed up in this partisan system. I've also read a little bit about open primaries. So instead of having a Republican primary and a Democratic primary, having a open primary irrespective of party affiliation and then using ranked choice to select perhaps four people for the general election and then also ranked choice voting in general. Is that an option or a preferred method, or what more do we need to inform our audience about? Well, that is a system that FairVote did uh, propose about 10 years ago for the first time, really in the context of how we thought that just states that were starting to use that kind of open blanket primary ballot with a top two formula. So California and Washington do that, say, where um, everyone votes in the first round, every candidate is running together, regardless of party, you vote for one, and then the top two face off. And um, what that generally means is uh, third parties and independents almost never make the November ballot. Um, And you either have just a traditional Democrat versus Republican contest, which is, you know, what we typically see, or you get two candidates of the same party and no candidates of the second biggest party which has its downsides as well. It's not like the full debate about, you know, having people have a chance to have their uh, voice heard. So we said, well, if, if you want to open up the primary ballot the way they do in California and Washington, why don't you consider advancing more than two? We suggested four. Have a write-in option. So if you ever feel frustrated by someone, who, uh, you know, that none of those four people represent you, you can always write someone in and then use ranked choice voting, which is a great way to handle choice. And that kind of idea got out there. Uh, some folks in Alaska who were looking into top two back in 2019 um, 
uh, we're interested in this. Uh, a woman named Catherine Gell has done a really good job job popularizing the idea. She's written a book with uh, Harvard business professor Michael Porter that kind of helped people think about this. And uh, so they decided to do top four instead of top two. Um, and uh, so Alaska passed that in 2020. So the voters voters agreed it was a good idea. Um, and they got to use it. Uh, in a uh, sort of unexpectedly when when Don Young died this year and there was a special election. And we can talk some about that contest, but they're using it for all their elections right now. So it's been used for one race so far for one office. And it's going to be used for all elects, all offices in Alaska. I think for fair vote, um, we like ranked choice voting. We believe it's a very good system, even without that, that, that open ballot, that open primary system. Uh, so like Maine, also uses it for their congressional elections, Senate elections, and they still have a traditional primary for each party. Third parties and independents can get right onto the November ballot. So, you know, there might be three, four or five candidates, and then they use ranked choice voting in November. Um, we think that's also a good system. Uh, well, we might talk later about how you can then broaden it into multi-member districts and have a, a, a kind of an American form of proportional representation that we think is a particularly what we say is the most preferred system. There are some very strong advocates of the Alaska model. I, you can see its impact. So when we talk a little bit more about that, you will see just what it means in a fascinating way. And we're proud that, that we proposed it. We are not singularly focused on it, though. That, that's, that's, that's something that we think is, uh, you know, like it's kind of a choice about primaries. But if you're going to do the California model, we would definitely urge this kind of top four or top five system. Right. And so what I'm trying to help uh, bring to the public's attention is this. We have a current system. We have closed primaries. I know in my home state of Michigan, we have to pick, you can pick, you're going to vote Republican or the Democratic primary. When you go, you can't vote them both, but you can, you have to pick one per, per, per session. Yep. So we have closed primaries. You typically get low voter turnout. So you get appeals to the most fervent versus the most practical or centrist, and you end up with a lesser of evils in the general election. That's kind of where we're at right now, with some exceptions, right? Or, you know, how many of the congressional districts are indeed contested versus ranked choice voting. Potentially, you have an open primary, you get four top candidates and then you get a ranked choice in the general election. And it might, you know, maybe it's a libertarian and a green party and a, you know, an independent and one of the major parties. And I think about things like campaign spending. It's real easy in a two horse race to throw up a lot of negatives against your opponent. In fact, we've got that here in the state of Michigan. I, I doubt that our governor would survive an open primary. And, and 100 percent of her ads are just negative on the other candidate. And I'm just wondering if there was a broader field, how that campaign spending might go. Do you have a, any view on that? I don't know. You said you worked on some elections and if it's not a fair question, we can move on to talk about some. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think a lot of the big money that we see is in a zero sum head to head choice, right? Where it's basically one person or the other and ad spending seems to be most effective when you're trying to discourage people from voting for someone else, right? It's like the negative attacks. And it's actually, you know, a lot of the tactics are actually just don't vote at all. They're actually sort of a kind of voter suppression kind of thing. But they also are certainly, well, that person's terrible. You should, you should vote for me. 
the way that it's worked out at kind of a meta level is that most voters are, have gotten very um, decisive in saying, well, I may not like either party, but I prefer one to the other, right? So, so most people are at this point have a preference. And a lot of the ads are reminding people why they don't like the other party and why they should, you should come home to, 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 to the other party, right? So, or it's just that, you know, 7% of people that haven't made up their mind about which party they really want to go for and just saying, well, that person's terrible, right? So vote for me just because the other person's terrible. So I think a lot of the money Basically, I would say, you know, in a close election, in a partisan election, you know, 90% of the money is targeted at about 8% of people, and it's largely negative. So I think if you have greater choice, um, it's not as binary, it's not as simplistic, and and you have to make more of an affirmative case. And I think, you know, money matters for sure, but at the same time, it's other kinds of ways. Certainly, we find that in a city election, we've really seen it a lot. It's not blanketing the city with ads. It's actually finding a way to connect with voters in some direct way where you've earned their respect. And, and it, it really seems to be about that. And that's not necessarily taking money. It's taking like shoe leather, you know, and, and, and a certain kind of campaigning. Now, as we scale, it's obviously, you know, the governor of Michigan is not going to knock on every door in Michigan, but people associated with her could, right? And 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 you kind of are are making that case. So I think um, I don't want to pretend that it would like do away with money in politics, but I think it would lessen its influence. Yeah, that, that's kind of kind of my sense. So the obviously a lot of training would have to go on with you know, the voting precincts and apparatus. Does fair vote? do any kind of education outreach and say, look, if you want to move to this type of system by referendum or whatever a state allows, do you have any programs that say, here's what you need to do in terms of software or processes in terms of counting those votes? Because it's a little different matter, I would think. Yeah. Well, for a long time, so for the first 25 years of our history at Fairvote, we were sort of everything ranked choice voting, right? So there would there be great state and local sort of usually volunteer run groups that we would, uh, you know, try to help and assist, but we sort of had to be very attentive to, you know, ballot counting and machines and voter education and so on. As the efforts have sort of scaled and as more people have gotten involved and more groups have gotten involved in a great way, <laughs> there's a more kind of, there's an ecosystem of groups that do different things. So there's a group called the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, which is particularly focused on election administration and voting equipment. And they've developed actually a free open source software that can be built into existing voting equipment to help do ranked choice voting, ballot design, things like that. Then there's a group called Democracy Rising. There's other groups that do this really well at the state level that really focuses on voter education and candidate education. Because you actually, in some ways, the candidates need to really understand it because you don't want them to be out there campaigning in, in a sort of a bad way for rangers voting. And then they are frustrated and blame the system. And in fact, they just didn't know the rules, right? That's a great segue to Alaska, because my understanding is that for the special election to replace Representative Young, Sarah Palin, who was one of the candidates, said, oh, don't vote for ranked choice at all. Just cast one ballot. So here's some data. The winner, Ms. Peltola, or Peltola, I'm not sure how to pronounce Pel that. Peltola, yeah. Peltola, yeah. okay. In the first round, she got 77,400 votes, Palin 60,264, and another Republican, Begich, or Begich, 55,800. So you could make a case to say 115,000 people picked a Republican and 
77,000 picked the Democrat. So, right, that's what one group is saying. In the second round, so Begich comes out because he's third place. Peltola adds 13,866 votes for a total of 91,266. Begich's voters added 25,762 voters for 86,026. And when you total Peltola and Palin, Peltola was over 50% of those votes cast. Now, here's an interesting stat coming out of this. 20% of the voters of Begich picked no second choice, as directed by candidate Palin. Had So that's about 11,000 and change votes. So if half of those Begich voters who picked no second choice actually cast a ballot, Palin probably would have been the winner. Now, again, is that education uh, of the voters? Is it administration? But I just wondered what your cut on this would be. What does that mean in terms for campaigns for election, given this record? And what's it going to mean for this election for the full term? I guess that's coming up in November with the same three candidates in the race. Yeah. Yeah, the same three candidates plus a libertarian is now going to be in the mix. So they'll they'll have a fourth candidate plus a write-in, but it's basically down to those three. And I think one thing is if every voter had ranked, but they had ranked in the same pattern that the, the voters who did rank. So most voters who supported Begich did rank, like a, you know about 80% of his voters did decide to rank a second choice. And they had to, they, it was very interesting because they had to choose between a Democrat and they, you know, they were voting for a Republican first. They either had to rank a Democrat second, but an interesting, a native Alaskan, someone who was very close to Don Young, who was the Republican who had died, who, who had uh, you know, left the office, kind of from Western Alaska, um, kind of when she was in the legislature, worked in what's called the Bush Caucus, which was about people involved in like rural parts of Alaska, and had kind of got a reputation as someone who had worked really well across party lines in the legislature, actually was very close to Sarah Palin, interestingly, because they were both young moms when she was governor, when Palin was governor and, and uh, Peltola was in the legislature. So she had kind of a reputation of, of working across party lines, but still she's a Democrat, right? And, and, and so, you know, if I'm a Republican voter, am I really going to rank her ahead of Palin? Well, 30% of people who ranked did. And then you had Sarah Palin, who, you know, very uh, nationally well-known candidate because she ran for vice president, but within Alaska, is actually pretty unpopular. Uh, the voters, uh, the polls consistently show about 60% of Alaskans see her negatively. She resigned as governor. and That's just election analysis, and we, that's not what we're talking about. I'm just looking at the numbers. In the second choice, the numbers that Palin got almost twice of what Peltola got. So Begich's voters didn't really move to Peltola. They they didn't speak or they went two to one in favor of Palin. Right. But if, but if, but if everyone that, that Rich that didn't rank ranked in that same pattern, Peltola still wins. And I'm just explaining why, right? That within Alaska, it's more complicated than just every Republican wants to vote for a Republican no matter what, right? It's speculation on what would those 11,000 voters... I mean, look, if Palin took two-thirds of that 11,200, and I haven't done the math, it still put her ahead. But, but sorry, I have, I, I have done the math. And, 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 and so that if they voted in the same pattern as those who did rank, she doesn't win. Now, 
So it's not really what what was really Sarah Palin's problem in that election was that a bunch of baggage people decided to rank Peltola. That was the sig- most significant reason that she lost. Um, of course, the most significant reason she lost was she was down by 9% in first choices, right? So keep in mind that if ranked choice voting hadn't been used at all, Peltola would have won by nine points. What I want to try to leap off into is this. As I'm reading uh, in preparation for our talk today, more of the criticism came from the right of center and more of the support from the left of center. Now, there's exceptions to this. Jerry Brown, for example, in California vetoed some ranked choice things. And I'm trying to figure out why one side or the other would think it's an advantage or disadvantage. And we have, you know, scant little data. And and if we're all trying to get to the same place that we want somebody with a broad appeal and to avoid the extremes, how are we doing? And why does one group lean one way and the other group lean the other way? Let's get there. But can I just sort of finish the point I'm trying to make about Alaska? Because it sure. gets to your point about polarization. So we try, try, we try to use this as a way to connect to polarization. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, we're having a talk, Rob. It's, I, I'm glad to be chatting with you today. So far away, man. I know you've maybe felt it was just like political analysis, but it's about polarization. So what Alaska showed is that if you as a Democrat can get 30% of a Republican's voters to rank you ahead of a, a second Republican, you can win even in Alaska, which is a Republican-leaning state. And there's a reason that it happened. It wasn't just random. It, it, it was about the way they embraced the system, the way they positioned themselves, and the incentives the system created to try to, to, try to do that. And actually, so, so, that, so Mary Potola embraced ranked trust voting. She, she said she was going to rank on her ballot. She, 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 she talked pretty, you know, found some ways to be positive about both Republican candidates. Because then, you know, she didn't know the order of finish for sure. Um, and, and, and that was important for her ultimate, uh, you know, victory that she's going to be tested again. Sarah Palin didn't do that, right? Exactly. So, so she ran kind of old school, vote for me, everyone else is kind of a bum. And, and if that's what, that's how you run, you tend not to do well with ranked choice voting. And actually, that's why the system does something intriguing for trying to bring us together. The same thing happened in Maine in a, in a kind of a more modest way. So you ask why Republicans are at this point more negative about ranked voting. It's very primal, very simplistic, and based on two elections, right? So it's the Sarah Palin election that just happened. But if you look at it, it's actually pretty transparent. It was the way she ran and who she is within Alaska. It's not Republican, Democrat. It, it, it's about the way you the way you run in the system, right? Um, and a lot of a lot of analysts have actually made that point, right? So there's sort of a simplistic, like, gosh, I can't believe we lost that seat. It must be the new system. But there's others that, well, it's really the way that Sarah Palin chose to run within the system. And they're going to get to run again in, in six weeks, and we'll see what happens. In in the main election in 2018, this was a very swingy district. It's It's a district that Obama carried in 2012, and then Trump carried in 2016, and it's like one that, you know, like a lot of voters are in play. And a Republican incumbent in, in 2018 um, had a narrow lead in first choices, just one point, much, much, you know, very close. It was like some like, you know, 47 to 46, something like that. Mm-hmm. But there were a bunch of independent voters, about 10 percent or, you know, close to it. And um, 
And in this, and they are the classic swing voters. They chose to rank an independent first. And the Republican, a guy named Bruce Poliquin, had had been very dismissive of people running as independents, said that they weren't qualified. And the, sort of, he essentially said, anyone who's voting for these clowns, you know, they're just like kind of clowns themselves or something, right? Some version of that. And, um, and the Democrat who was challenging him, you know, uh, made a case that there were some things that he was learning from the independent candidates. He was glad they were part of the field and, and, and kind of made a connection to them. And he got about two out of every three of those votes. And then he ended up winning. So it's very much tied to the way they ran, but the Republicans just saw that they lost the seat and just were frustrated. And that's really why it's really actually those two elections (laughs) that are actually explaining it. But we're also seeing in a more quiet way, a lot of Republican interest in this, really more tied to primaries at this point. But we'll also see what happens after November because there's going to be some big partisan elections. Yeah, look, the, the Republicans, if they had any brains, would find a way to, to to show Trump the door. Okay, And I've been saying that for years. We've The last two presidential cycles been a, a lesser of evils. It, it, we, we haven't got any really good choices, Okay, in my humble opinion, in, in, in the last two cycles. I was just curious as to why that would why that tilt would go there. Because the, the object of the game is not only the election, but it's what people do after they get there. So when I hear that, you know, a, a Democrat or a Republican won, and but, but gosh, they sure appealed to the other side. And then they go to Washington. And you know who's in Washington? It's, you know, Kevin McCarthy and it's Nancy Pelosi. It's Charles Schumer and it's Mitch McConnell. And they're controlling committee assignments, they're controlling campaign funds, and they're making sure they get that vote out. That tension for Mary Peltola, when she gets to Washington, that pressure on her to vote with the party, although it may be against her more you know, conservative or libertarian uh, electorate. That, right. to me, is where we begin to get real democracy back, where we're not so concerned about the outcome of the election based on what badge the election's over and I'll go represent us. And, you know, when I think about presidential politics, if you go back to the 1960 election, we had two people, either which was qualified to be president of the United States. And it was a very close election and they both had respect for each other. And there's a great deal written about how they handled that. Now, neither one of them, Neither Nixon nor John Kennedy could be nominated by their own party today. Nixon was far too liberal with the Environmental Protection Agency, with the healthcare reform and such. And of course, Kennedy was also a defense hawk and, and, a, and a tax cutter. So we've gone from that time to this really extreme polarization, and it's filtered down. And, and that's, you know, my concern was what forms of of voting reform can help us get to the point where we can hold those that we elect accountable to us again. Okay, we're going to stop right there. And that concludes part one of Rich's interview with Rob Ritchie. Join us next week in episode 176 for the conclusion of this fascinating conversation about ranked choice voting. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day.
Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.